Welcome to The Staff Room, an education podcast which takes a look into the world of pedagogy. In this series, we meet educators far and wide to chat about teaching and learning and share outstanding practice. My name is Michael Royale, and I'm sitting here with Tessa Johnson, and we're coming to you from Corpus Christi College in Perth, Australia. In this episode, we will be talking about the ways slow and meaningful practice has an impact on learning. We'll be chatting to the author of the book, Slow Teaching, on finding calm and impact in the classroom. UK-based teacher and author Jamie Tom joins us to share his views on the ways slowing down and taking stock can lead to better teacher wellbeing and improve student outcomes. Far too often we're looking at the, the speedy, quick fix of things rather than considering you know, the reflection, the pace that we need to do things in order to make learning gains over time. We will also be chatting to James Ramsey, a humanities teacher at Corpus Christi College, who will tell us about the practical and effective ways formative assessment is changing the way students receive feedback in his learning area. In the past, I might have spent hours thinking about how might I start the lesson or how might I might end the lesson, and it might have been really fun and engaging, but it took a, a lot of time and I'm not necessarily sure that it had a big impact on, on the learning. I'm Michael Royale. And I'm Tessa Johnson. And this is The Staff Room. So Tessa, we're talking to Jamie Tom and James Ramsey today. Uh, what are you looking forward to the most with Jamie's interview? Uh, look, I'm really looking forward to both interviews today, um, but Jamie Tom's book is uh, really, really resonating with me at the moment because it's right, really about just slowing the process down and he talks a lot about um, teacher wellbeing as well. And you and I, Michael, are both pretty early in our teaching careers. We're you know, just a couple of years out and this is actually quite a critical time, I think, for new teachers to burn out and to get overwhelmed. And he has this nice analogy that he uses at the beginning of his book where he says, you know, a teacher should not be like a candle, like they should not burn out at the expense of giving light and bright to others. And I really, really connect with that analogy. And his book goes through a lot of different strategies as to how to, yeah, sustain sort of joy and, and drive and vigor within the classroom. How about you, Michael? Um, how about James Ramsey? What are you looking forward to there? Uh, well, James Ramsey is a bit of a gun uh, when it comes to formative assessment at Corpus. Yes, he is. Yeah, he is. And I'm just really excited to hear some of the techniques that he's going to be able to suggest to us to use in our classroom and, you know, for teachers in general, because it's such an important thing and makes our job a hell of a lot easier if we have good ways of formatively assessing students. Yeah, and I've actually worked in humanities with him as my head of department and some of the things he'd come up with and that would use in the classroom, which is so good and saved so much time as well. So, yeah. He's got some awesome things to say. I know that. Great. Let's get started, shall we? Let's do it. Jamie Tom is an English teacher from the northeast of England. After having leadership experience as an assistant head teacher, Jamie is now studying for a master's in educational leadership. Jamie joins us via Skype today to talk about his recent book, Slow Teaching, which is about refocusing our practice and only doing things for the right reasons. So hi, Jamie, and thank you so much for joining us today. Could you just tell our listeners a little bit about yourself to start off, please? Hi there, of course. Thanks very much for having me on your show. Um, well, basically, uh, I'm an English teacher, first and foremost, um, and I started uh, my teaching career in um, central London. And I worked for a few years in a sort of comprehensive in central London, and I was very lucky that I was uh, promoted really early. So I was promoted to um, a leadership position in that school. Um, 
I guess, uh, unfortunately, I sort of, um, I worked for about 18 months in that role and um, I guess sort of ran myself into the ground, just worked all hours every day and eventually sort of um, completely burned out and was quite ill um, for, for about a month. Um, so eventually what I decided to do was sort of return back to uh, the classroom because I wanted to sort of, I guess, um, grow and learn to understand uh, teaching and learning a little bit more and uh, I guess think about how to manage um, things like the, the stress that comes with teaching um, more as well. So we relocated uh, to the northeast, to the wonderful Newcastle, um, and now in a full-time teaching role. Um, and what I did is initially I started doing a, a, a master's in education and I really enjoyed the sort of reflective um, element of that. Um, and then I set up a blog, um, which is uh, slowteaching.co.uk. Um, and then I was very lucky in, in the sense that, that that went quite well. So that's a sort of mix of things about English teaching, managing stress and well-being. Um, and as I say, I was lucky I got a book contract from that. Um, and then sort of last year, I spent about a year writing um, Slow Teaching. And it's about, um, I guess, how to find calm, clarity and uh, a sense of impact in the classroom. What sort of reception have you received um, after releasing your book? Um, to be honest, I've been really surprised about um, <laughs> the, the positive side of it because I think it's it's a it's um it's quite a big thing, I guess, putting putting your work out in such a, a sort of significant level, um, and and people have been hugely positive and really kind about you know how useful they found um, you know the, both elements, I guess, the idea of how to improve teaching in the classroom, but what's most sort of um, pleased me really is is the whole well-being aspect to it. You know, how many messages I've, I've had online, via Twitter, via the website, about people who've experienced similar things. And, you know, particularly within that first five years of teaching, um, there's a huge amount of, of burnout. I mean, I'm not sure if the situation is the same in Australia, but certainly in the UK, you know, the amount of teachers we've got leaving the profession, unfortunately, who who probably would be offering a huge amount, you know, in classrooms um, and as teachers. But I've just found it so overwhelming as a profession to manage the workload, to manage the stress um, that, that they've left teaching. Um, so I, I think, you know, people, as I say, have been, um, I've hopefully found that aspect useful about ways in which you can more um, proactively manage, manage stress um, and look at strategies to, I guess, sustain um, a career in teaching. Because that's ultimately what we all want. You know, we, we're committed to the profession. We want to be here for a long period of time. But those first few years um, are incredibly demanding. Yeah, we do have the same problem in Australia. I think I think there's a statistic for us, maybe in the first five years, a third of teachers leave the profession. So yeah, we right. definitely have the the same problem over here in Australia. And that's depressing, isn't it? You know, um, because it's really young, talented people, I'm sure, who with time and with longevity, teaching does, does become easier. But that, that first five years, it's, there's a huge amount of pressure to get it right so quickly. And I think we need to be looking, you know, probably across, across all teachers about ways in which we can make that easier and more sustainable for people, I think. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, so we really liked your analogy of the tortoise and the hare. Can you actually explain that a little bit more for us? Oh, thank you. Um, so basically it's based on, on, on the fable 
Um, so the idea is you've got this sort of uh, plucky hare, this kind of arrogant hare, um, who challenges the other animals to a race. Um, and obviously no one wants to take him on um, because he's sort of talking up his, his skill and things. And then eventually the sort of the humble tortoise uh, um, agrees and, challenge, and agrees to, to take this race. Now obviously the hare sets off at a, a huge rapid pace um, but because he's so far ahead he decides to take a, a snooze and the, the tortoise basically um, slowly and incrementally uh, ends up winning the race because he takes over the hare when he's sleeping. Um, and I think for me that was, was very much kind of encapsulated a lot about um, education. You know, I think far too often we're looking at the, the speedy, quick fix of things rather than considering, you know, the reflection, the pace that we need to do things in order to make learning gains over time. I think I'm not sure in Australia, but in the UK, certainly when I was training, there was a sort of obsession with um, outstanding one-off teaching episodes. And part of the criteria of that was um, this idea of rapid pace. Um, so when I was training in my first few years, I was obsessed with that sort of individual lesson focus. And I would pour hours into sort of preparing these masterpiece lessons um, where kids would be hanging from chandeliers, they were so engaged and, you know, there were sort of rockets flying everywhere. But my, my issue was that nothing was sort of sticking in terms of my students' long-term memory. And they would have these lovely one-off experiences, but over time, their learning wasn't improving. You know, and, that, and I think I was very much in the sort of Mr. Hare way of doing things. You know, I would run around school, and even when I was sort of promoted into more management, um, everything was done quickly. You know, I was sending off emails, I was having quick conversations, I was moving really quickly. Um, when in reality, I think, first of all, for our students what's going to help them more is taking that kind of slower, incremental planning over a series of lessons and being organised in terms of the quality of the curriculum we're offering them, being organised, you know, from an individual teacher point of view about what we're doing through the course of the year for them. So taking that kind of um, long view of teaching rather than that really sort of um, focused individual learning experience. And then when I started to think a lot more about that um, sort of tortoise analogy to teaching, um, I realised that it can apply to just about every single aspect of teaching. You know, that sense of slowing things down a little bit, reflecting more, considering more, um, with hugely positive outcomes, I think, as well. And what brought about that realisation that you were potentially going a bit, you know, like too quick and manage to actually change to a slower approach because I mean obviously you've got a whole book dedicated to it but yeah, um, and I think I think we, we we think of doing things really fast as being really efficient and then if we're efficient we've got more time so yeah what actually brought you to think okay actually slowing things down is actually going to help my well-being yeah um I read a, I read a book uh, a couple of years ago by uh, Carl Honor who's a journalist and it's called in praise of slow and he basically applies this sort of um slow lens, if you like, to um, all aspects of life. And I read it and I was, it was, at, I was at a point where um, I still didn't feel, you know, hugely confident about, um, you know, managing stress and about kind of the pace of things I was doing things in the classroom. Um, and, and from that, 
as I say, I kind of, I considered that in, in terms of everything to do with teaching. And then I guess ultimately what I found was through about six months of experimenting in the classroom and, and slowing all aspects down um, that I felt, you know, calmer, more in control in what I was doing. I think my students had more of a sense of, of learning over time. And then I started to move from what was probably a more kind of blinkered mindset in terms of lots of things I was doing into the classroom into, uh, as I say, more of this overarching view of um, lots of different aspects. So I think sometimes you need that sort of lightning bolt moment where it's one of the brilliant things, I guess, about reading and reflecting as a teacher where somebody offers something to you and then um, it starts to sort of slowly revolutionise what you're doing. Because the other issue, I guess, with, with sort of improving as a teacher is there's, there's so much out there and it's brilliant you know, the online community, the amount of books there is, that we, we sort of feel this pressure to, to uh, change things, improve things really quickly. We try things out and we introduce things into the classroom, but then after a couple of weeks, they disappear. Whereas, you know, taking our time with it, you know, experimenting over a course of introducing things slowly tends to have, you know, I think anyway, and from writing the book and things, I think it tends to have much more of an impact over a longer period of time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, now, I really am going to talk to you about your chapter where you talk about uh, nonverbal communication because that is something that uh, I guess really resonated with me and I think we learn sort of in university quite early on but doesn't really get revisited ever again sort of thing. So why, have, uh, why do you think it's important to write about nuanced skills like nonverbal communication? Um, well, I think, you know, as I say, I think sometimes we um, – overcomplicate teaching and as I say because of the wealth of um, information there is about teaching and because of the wealth of ideas there is sometimes we forget that fundamentally a lot of what we're doing is we are standing in front of young people for you know six seven hours a day communicating and I think that get, that gets lost a little bit and even you know and I know it's a little bit of a cliche but that sort of old adage that teachers are actors and I think um, the way in which we communicate in the classroom and the way in which we present ourselves on a non-verbal level is often as important as, as you know, the, the content which we're teaching because it's part of that nuanced way in which we can build positive relationships with students. And I think that sense of building positive relationships is as important as, as, as what we're teaching. So, it, you know, I start to think a lot about, um, you know, things like posture, Things like how we stand when we're in front of a class can reveal a huge amount about our, our sort of own, you know, anxiety levels, our own stress levels, and can really influence how those young people respond to us. And um, so a lot about kind of, you know, standing, I've got terrible posture myself and it's something I've worked really, really hard on, but kind of standing straight when we're in front of a group of young people um, can have a huge influence in, in also how assertive we appear to our students um, and also things like hand gestures um, there's and there's a fine balance I think between um, I call it sort of the um, air traffic controller you know <laughs> where you're waving your arms about everywhere you're kind of wildly enthusiastic and and being you know too static and um, so I, I, I actually sort of think that the the slow um, use of our hand gestures can be quite captivating for students 
and it sounds a bit a bit, bit bizarre without kind of uh, practicing a little bit yourself, but the way in which we um, kind of use our hands to communicate sort of key messaging, because young people are, you know, as you'll know yourselves, they're, they're really easily distracted by anything going on in a room. And if we can channel the communication, and non-verbal ways is one of the ways to do that, we can help to sustain their concentration. I think as teachers, that's, that's got to be one of our pretty high up in our prerogatives to make sure they're, you know, they're focused on us. And so, you know, it's, it's tiny little things. Another thing I was thinking about was um, the way in which you use eye contact as communicators in the classroom. And I often find that I get this kind of tunnel vision. So I'm looking at certain points in the classroom, but I'm not engaging um, perhaps one corner. And again, it's not about being sort of, um, you know, slightly creepy and keeping eye contact for far too long. It's just about making sure that everyone in the class feels a part of the sort of the community of the lesson and you're engaging with individuals, um, you know, through eye contact, through body language. Um, and, and Doug Lemov in his books has got a lot about that in terms of, um, he calls it breaking the, pain, the plane. So when you are at the front of the room and you've got that invisible line that lots of teachers stand behind and sort of project from the front, but it's also about kind of breaking through that and getting down to students on an individual level and kind of working your way around the room. And for, for sort of young new teachers, that is one of the real difficulties, having the confidence to get down to students level and having the confidence to sort of own the teaching space, as it were. Um, and I think all that requires, you know, it's not just at the start of your profession, it, it's, it's something that as teachers, um, we should be reflecting on all the time, how we communicate non-verbally, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that is something that a lot of teachers just take for granted because they've been doing it for so long. Like, yeah, I can public speak. Yeah, I can use hand gestures. But I, I remember there was a part in that chapter that said, you know, picture it's Friday, it's period five, your shoulders are slumped, you get your hands crossed. And I was sort of actually like, oh, actually, maybe that is me at times. So I think, yeah, just just <laughs> just having that awareness of it is is really powerful and, and very important. Mm-hmm. Uh, Definitely. Tessa and I really liked part four of your book, Slow Classroom Strategies. Um, personally, I really liked the part on modelling, particularly live modelling. Which strategy has had a profound impact in your classroom? I'm really pleased that's been helpful. Thank you. Um, I, th- I think for me, um, one of the things that I found really helpful in terms of the, the research process of writing the book was um, spending a long time thinking about marking because I think... And the, the situation in the UK um, has been for some time now that marking has been given this, this real focus and real priority in terms of, you know, moving learning forward and in terms of, um, you know, challenging our students. And, and I wholeheartedly agree that marking is important, but I think particularly for us that that conversation has sort of lost a lot of perspective and that lots of kind of schools or I've got these outrageous marking policies where people are required to give extensive written feedback, you know, once a week to the classes and, and it all has become a little bit um, ridiculous to be honest. And it's one of the main driving factors in the UK why, why people, you know, are, are leaving the profession because they're finding that they can't manage the workload and a huge significant part of that is they can't manage the expectation that they're giving the students lots and lots of written feedback. And I, I actually think the, the, you know, the idea of uh, slow marking is about 
being a reflective marker and about making sure that um, you're strategic and planning out you know, what it is for students that will be marked over the course of, of a term and thinking really carefully, again, not just about you know, the, the ownership on the teacher, but thinking, well, what are my students going to be doing as a consequence of receiving that written feedback? Because again, marking can be, can be hugely nuanced. You know, there's lots of little strategies you can use to help manage that. So things like using marking codes. Um, you know, as an English teacher, the expectation on, on us is huge, as it is for lots of other subjects. But, you know, I've been experimenting with these marking codes where you, you don't write out in full the targets. You maybe give numbers and then share them with the class. And then also, you know, this, this, you've seen it lots of it on Twitter about kind of um, marking crib sheets whereby you write down, um, while you're marking, you write down some feedback you're going to deliver to the whole class or individuals. So you're, you're not just sort of speeding through a series of 30 books. You are maybe writing less in their books, but thinking more about the implications of what will happen in the classroom that will be different as a consequence of me marking these books. So I found that really, and I, and I think as well, the, the modelling was a huge aspect that I've, I've now kind of placed much more in my lessons um, as a consequence of reading and researching. I think often we, you know, we ask students to do things, we set them off on a task, and we miss the stage that can have a huge impact in the quality of that final outcome for them. So the process of, of modelling things, of, of sort of showing them how to do it, of giving them a pre-prepared answer that you've completed yourself is, is really, really powerful. Because I think what it also does is it, is it shows that as teachers, um, you know, we're confident, we love our subjects, um, we like to also do what we're asking them to do. It gives us a huge amount of sort of, I guess, credence in their view in the, in the sense that um, we are the experts in our subject. And I think when, when you get the stage where um, students genuinely think that, um, you know, they're in the hands of an expert, it's incredibly powerful and they start to hang on every word. Um, so the live modelling is a great way to do that, you know, when you're writing in, in, in front of students or when you're completing an answer in front of students and then you're talking them through the thought process of it. Um, is really, really powerful. And it stops that moment, that sort of speedy moment in the lesson where you go, right, off you go, do this. And then you've got sort of a handful of students in the class who say, oh, I'm, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't understand how to, you know, how to do this. If they've seen a sort of live model or they've seen an example of it, it's just a helpful way for them to grow in confidence as well. And then obviously it's about kind of pulling that back when the class get more confident and again, that's something that just requires a little bit of thinking as well. Yeah, look, one of the reasons I really liked the idea of modelling and live modelling is, is because in the past I've actually surveyed students and asked, you know, what activities do you learn best from? And it seems that there is an overwhelming popularity for, I like it where Miss Johnson gives an exemplar, um, exemplar response and talks us through it. Um, but how do we make sure that they're actually really engaging with that and not just reading it and thinking, oh, yeah, that's good, I'm going to try and write like that and then not actually really using it effectively. Yeah, and that, that's the balance, isn't it? Because I think sometimes if they become over-reliant on it, um, you get the sense that they can as well just sort of copy, you know, depending on the subject, but they just, they just copy the example. And I have seen that before so, as well. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, and I think there's, a, there's, a, there's a few strategies there. I think part of them, one of the questioning strategies uh, I've got in the book is this, is this idea of the, the pugnacious probe, um, whereby whenever you've given somebody a, a model answer, um, the questioning as a teacher is really, really important. And the questioning needs to bring in, you know, the, all aspects of the class. So you're going around going, why have I done that? What's the purpose of that? How does that impact uh, the overall answer? You know, you really are sort of being quite incisive in terms of questioning the students about what it is they're looking at and reading. You know, other things is, is um, this idea of, uh, <laughs> you can tell you slow a lot in the book, but this idea of slow annotation, whereby, you know, they're not just reading it, it's not just in front of them, but the students are active in terms of writing down and annotating what it is that's been done and why it's successful. And, it, you know, the visualizer is a brilliant way to do that. So you have a visualizer, you put it up on the screen, and you're annotating alongside the students while, they, um, while you're reading it and going through the model answer. You know, another good trick is um, to show them a model to uh, a different question that they're going to answer eventually has the same sort of thinking process and the same sort of skills, but then they have to complete a slightly different task. Or even just, you know, having a model in front of them for five minutes, going through it, but then explaining to them you're going to take that model away from them. You know, you're going to remove that model, so the expectation is they're going to do the task on their own after that. And if they know that there's that sense of, um, you know, slight sense of panic that, oh, this this wonderful, beautiful piece of work is going to vanish in a second, then they're, they're slightly more likely to focus their thinking in on kind of taking in what that model answer might be saying to them. Um, so, yeah, I think, it's, I think it's a difficult boundary. I completely agree. But um, it just, again, requires reflection on ways in which the students can, um, you know, learn from the model, but also develop independence as well, I think. Um. So next question is kind of similar, but what are the top three well-being tips you would suggest for a new graduate teacher? Oh, break it down to uh, top three. It's a tricky one. Um, and we'll be listening because we're both new graduates. <laughs> oh, that's, that's even more pressure then. Uh, I think, um, I know this is a little bit, yeah, I guess it's a little bit cheesy, but I think the, the first one ultimately, I think there is a sort of, um, there's a narrative that to be a... Uh, um, you know, to be a to be a wonderful, incredible teacher, you need to devote everything to your um, students, and you need to become a kind of uh, self-sacrificing uh, figure at the altar. You know, who's up all night planning wildly exciting lessons, who's marking books until you collapse on a heap uh, in the middle of the night. And I think that's quite a damaging narrative, because I think in order to give the best to young people, you need to ultimately prioritize your own well-being and you need to be able to um, first of all function as an adult and as a human being um, and to do that I think I think you need to um, as I say put your well-being first and that involves I think getting adequate sleep that involves having a, a life outside of the classroom and that involves um, I think not um, letting teaching take over your life I think would be my number one because if you can do that, if you can have that slightly more dispassionate approach to it, you can still be incredibly passionate and you can still, you know, um, put, put a lot into your job, but not let it completely 
overwhelm and dominate you. Because I think that, that's where this idea of this long view of education is really important. It's sometimes difficult to remember that the, for me, you know, I'll have another 30 odd years in the profession. Um, and sometimes you feel this sense as a graduate, you've got to get things really quickly. You've got to sort things, you've got to do things. And that can be quite come overwhelming. Um, the second one, I think, uh, and I remember when I used to, li I lived in Australia for a year, and I think this was, Australian people are huge about this, but I think exercise is, is such a hugely important thing in terms of managing your well-being. Um, and, it, and it's not necessarily something, you know, hugely intense, but I think just making the time to get outside, to go for a walk, to go for a jog, to go for a cycle, to go for a swim. And for me, that, that has been one of the, you know, definitely one of the best ways to manage stress because it just gets all those lovely positive endorphins flying around it just helps you to get that little sense of perspective that um you know tomorrow's a new day you can start again you can keep going um so secondly i think exercise is really important and then the third and final thing um to sort of as a theme that's run through this is making the time to reflect you know and it sounds like you've got brilliant systems to do that in your school but they're not always there and i think Making the time to reflect doesn't necessarily mean uh, reflecting the negatives, which is another thing we, you know, we're, we're prone to do as, as, as people entering the profession. I think reflecting on the joys and even just writing down at the end of a day, you know, two, three things that have gone well that are positive um, can really sort of uh, nurture a tired soul. And it's difficult sometimes. You don't realise the good things you do in the classroom and education in school on a daily basis and actually making the time to just remember them and recall them and you know not you know if writing is not something you you know that is your way of reflecting just finding some way to recognize and, and slow down and think actually I did that really well um, I think that can have a real impact in in positivity and well-being you know this this well-being can be um uh I don't want to say overly simplified, but I think to be, to have well-being, you need to find value and meaning in what you're doing. And reflecting on the positives is one of the ways you can do that, I think. Wonderful. So that is having realistic expectations to exercise and to take time to reflect on the positives. Like the sound of that. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, just last up, for our listeners, could you please let us know uh, what your Twitter handle is and where they can find a copy of your book? Absolutely. So uh, I'm on Twitter as uh, TeachGratitude1 and then uh, Slow Teaching is available in um, probably Amazon, to be honest, would be the, the easiest way. Uh, it's just Slow Teaching, Finding Calm, Clarity and Impact in the Classroom. Awesome. Well, thank you so much again, Jamie, for um, agreeing to be interviewed with us. We have learnt so much and it's really, really nice to focus on wellbeing, particularly when we're at the tail end of Term 2 over here in Australia and oh. <laughs> reports are due, marks are coming in. So it's it's pretty high pressure, but it's nice, uh, a really nice sort of mantra to preach to, to slow down. Not a problem at all. Thank you very much. It's an absolute pleasure speaking to you this morning. Thank you very much for having me. Our next guest, James Ramsey, is Head of Humanities at Corpus Christi College and is a strong believer in low-stakes, high-impact teaching and learning. James is a big supporter of research-based pedagogy and has been working to implement a range of practical strategies into his learning area. 
So welcome, James, and uh, thank you so much for agreeing to talk to us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, great. So uh, for our listeners, can you just tell us a little bit about yourself, please? Yeah, so I've been at Corpus Christi College now for almost 11 years, and uh, in that time I've been Head of Humanities for around five and a half years, and I really enjoy that role. I feel as though I am able to have an impact in terms of um, influencing teaching and learning, particularly within my learning area, but also have the capacity also to work with other teachers and, and coach them and, and really help to um, build their capacity as well, which, um, which I enjoy. Hey, great. Um, James, I know one of your focuses for the last few years has been formative assessment. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about what you have been doing with formative assessment uh, in the past two years? Yeah, so I think when I reflected on assessments in general, I sort of came to the realisation that summative assessment is... Um, is has been elevated to such sort of lofty heights that it's almost become the number one sort of concern of um, students and parents and teachers. So it's very easy to become sort of driven by by assessments, and I think that really can create a lot of anxiety and, and stress and can be very time consuming, but doesn't necessarily have a major impact on on learning. And they really judge their success based on their grade. They don't necessarily see assessments as a, as a, um, I suppose something that is just formalising what they're learning in the classroom. Um, they just focus on the the score, the grade, how that compares to their to their their partner, um, and it can become something that that results in a lot of anxiety. So, I think one problem is that we probably do too many assessments in in general. We we spend too much time marking. Um, providing lengthy written comments that often aren't understood or, or read. I think it really required sort of a paradigm shift. I didn't think this is really sustainable. So uh, that obviously takes a bit of, bit of time, but um, my focus has been more on the, the learning and progressing the learning, um, more so than, than focusing on assessment. So providing more ongoing feedback to, to students to sort of help them move forward. So our, our goal really has been, um, in humanities, has been um, more feedback, less marking. Yeah, and I totally agree with that. And you've mentioned, obviously, you know, shifting the mindset for students and for teachers, but you mentioned earlier also parents. And I think that's a, a really important thing as well because quite often if a, you know, if, if a child doesn't do that well in their assessment, you get an email the next day from the parents mm. sort of saying, you know, what are you doing wrong and what is my mm. kid doing wrong? Um, and, and I think they a lot of the time think that it's a reflection of their intelligence rather than, you know, maybe just not um, grasping some course concepts that well. So, mm. yeah, you are correct in saying I think that it's got to, it's got to shift in, in every party, students, teachers and parents. Mm. Um, you also mentioned the anxiety that a lot of students tend to have with summative assessments. Mm. Have you noticed a bit of a change towards that anxiety because of the amount of formative assessments you're now doing? I think students are better able, by doing sort of more low stakes type assessments and giving more ongoing feedback, I think students are better able to recognise sort of what they know, what they don't know, where they can improve on. So they're, they're getting feedback prior to the, to the assessment. So I think in that case, I am starting to see a bit more of a, a shift in terms of students knowing perhaps areas that they need to, to study prior to the assessment, that it's not just they study everything, that they, that it's about giving them more awareness of, um, of what they know, what they don't know, 
and therefore helping them to focus on those areas that they, they, they don't know as well. Um, so therefore, just kind of streamlining that, that process of, of revision. And I think they're becoming more, more used to, it's become more of a routine in terms of like starting a lesson with a, with a quiz or we, we might start with some multiple choice questions. So it's about um, definitely changing that culture about um, in relation to, to feedback, making it a more ongoing process for sure. Yeah, that's great. Um, we know you've read professional development books such as Make Every Lesson Count by Andy Tharby, which we both absolutely loved as well. Mm. Um, so what are some of the main principles which underpin your teaching and learning philosophy? Yeah, I think Making Every Lesson Count is, is fantastic in terms of it almost provides a manual for, for how to teach. And I don't think I'd, I'd ever had a manual about how to teach before. So what I really liked about that is that it emphasised um, key aspects of of what we do on an everyday um, basis in terms of um, questioning and explaining and, and modelling, um, providing opportunities for practice, giving feedback effectively, um, and also provided some some simple strategies that, that we could employ to sort of hone that, that craft. Um, so that's what I really liked about that. Um, it also reinforced to me that effective teaching can be quite teacher-directed as well. And there's a particular um, part I enjoyed from the book about um, struggle being the key to learning. So I've really kind of embraced that in my classroom as well, that um, when you've got lots of students in the class who are, who are kind of struggling and, um, and finding it difficult, that's often when the best learning takes place. So that, that's definitely something that's kind of resonated with me. Also the importance of, um, of challenging students. So that, that's definitely been something that I often sort of refer back to. Um, also, I've just started reading um, Tom Sherrington, the, the Learning Rainforest, and I'm about halfway through that. So the first half is kind of theory-based and the next half is practical. I haven't got to the practical part yet, but that's, um, that's up there with making every lesson count in terms of just being a fantastic um, guide to, to great teaching and learning. Um, and what has come out of that is the idea of, um, of developing a sort of knowledge-rich curriculum, like focusing on mainly um, what to teach and, and why to teach rather than just the how to teach, that before we get to the how to teach, we need to actually focus on um, really developing students' knowledge. Um, I, obviously, being a humanities teacher, I, w I want my kids to, um, to think critically, to think deeply, to solve problems, um, to apply their learning, but I think they need that sort of really strong knowledge base. So that, that's something that, um, that I think really under, underpins my, um, my teaching philosophy, as well as I think I've become a lot more um, sort of teacher-centred, employed more of a sort of direct teaching um, process, more so in the last, last few years. I think when I first started teaching, it was more maybe inquiry-based, discovery-based learning. Um, and I, I still think that's important, but I think it's underpinned by that strong knowledge base. But also, um, I suppose, what's crucial to my philosophy would be having high expectations for all students, um, challenging them. So that idea of that Goldilocks level of challenge, but really challenging um, students to do their best, developing um, strong relationships with students, creating a really positive learning environment, and, and always being aware of that why question. So um, why are we doing this particular task? How will this help you to progress your learning? So as we know, and I'm sure you know as well, uh, Corpus is an iPad school. 
How has technology helped enhance formative assessment? Like, are there any tools you'd recommend or apps? Mm, there's probably two that I mainly focus on, and they would be um, Padlet. So I really like using Padlet um, for two, two different ways. One would be as a way of enabling students to, um, to provide questions. That might, be at the, that might be like why questions at the start of the, the unit that you can often start lessons with that might be outside of the curriculum but still interesting and, and relevant and um, can help to engage students. But also for doing particularly short writing tasks where, where I might put, on a, put a, a success criteria on there, clarify that with them, go through what I expect and then um, students can either um, put their name on their piece of work or they can do it anonymously. You can provide feedback on, on, on how they're going in relation to the, the success criteria. So that, that enables you to get sort of whole class feedback on, on how they're going, but also you can individualise it and you can provide individual feedback. You can even incorporate a bit of um, peer assessing as well. So I really like that. But probably the main one that I use actually now is quizzes. I think that is, is fantastic. Um, probably in the early years of my teaching, I maybe shied away from using multiple choice questions, but I've realised that it's a really efficient way of getting a lot of information about your students and what they know and what they what they don't know so you get fantastic feedback it's a it's a tool whereby you um, you put multiple choice questions in there uh, there's already a whole bank of questions that you can use um, I tend to use exam questions so they're of a they're of a high quality um, and you get again whole class feedback you also get individual feedback which then influences what you do next as a teacher. So I think that, that's really important that you're constantly adapting based on the feedback that you're getting. So often I think the rule that, that I have is that I will go through all of the questions where the success rate was about 65% or less and we'll, we'll go through that question and generally I'll, I'll ask a student to explain what they think the answer is and then go through their reasoning and it's only when I'm not satisfied that they've understood and explained it effectively that I'll, that I'll sort of um, clarify any misconceptions and, and go over it in more, more detail. But that, that's often really useful, I've found, as a homework um, activity. So you can ask, say, 20 questions. It might take 10 minutes to complete. And then you get great feedback, which then um, can help inform what you do at the start of the next lesson. Yeah, and I like how you, your approach is, particularly when you're talking about multiple choice, um, and, and that approach as well is, is very, very time, time effective because, mm. as we know, any teacher will tell you that they are time poor. Mm. Um, is there anything else you can think of where you know, teachers can save time in their formative assessment? Because I think that's, that's the main anxiety that exists around formative assessment is that it's, it's more time, basically. Mm. I think we – I know that I've – done less assessments in year 11 and 12. We, we've cut it down to the bare minimum. So we're, we're doing eight assessments in year 11 and, and eight assessments in, in year 12. So what I'm trying to do is, yeah, more, more ongoing feedback on a day-to-day -day basis, every lesson, trying to interact with students regularly, checking their work, reading their work, asking them questions, asking them how they can improve on their response. Um, but then saying... If they can't identify how they can improve, sometimes you need to give that feedback. So this is what I would recommend you do. In 10 minutes time, I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna check that. Cause it's important that they obviously act on that feedback, but then you would, you would come back and you would, you would check that. 
but but just in general, like you said, it, we really are time poor. So so one of the challenges is I think working out what is most effective, what what really works, and and focusing more of your energy on on that. So I found more of a teacher directed approach has actually probably saved me a fair bit of bit of time. I think um, in the past I might have spent hours thinking about how might I start the lesson or how might I might end the lesson, and it might have been really fun and engaging but it took a, a lot of time and I'm not sure it necessarily fitted in with the, the learning and I'm not necessarily sure that it had a big impact on, on the learning. So, so cutting out those things that don't have a big impact and focusing more of my energy on, on what does make a, an impact and probably having more of a routine as well. So if you can develop good quality questions, multiple choice questions or quiz questions or short answer questions, you can reuse them again. Um, so doing more of those sorts of things um, and reinventing the wheel a little bit less. And also there's great resources out there that have been invented already. You don't necessarily have to start from scratch. So there's obviously great ideas on, on Twitter, which I um, engage with and, and, and use as well. Um, also less written comments, definitely. So using a marking code, for example. So um, identifying some common errors or some common areas that, that students often um, have in their work, giving them information on how they can improve on that, that, that aspect, um, giving more verbal feedback, a lot more verbal feedback um, than, than written comments, um, more whole class feedback as well. Yeah, thanks so much, James. Um, that's, that's all our questions, but thank you so much for, um, for joining us and for all your knowledge about formative assessment and uh, some of your great ideas as well. Thank you very much. Thanks, James. Thanks so much for listening to The Staff Room. And thanks to our guests, Jamie Tom and James Ramsey. If you'd like to follow us on Twitter, my handle is Michael underscore Royale and Tessa's is Tessa underscore Johnson too. Please make sure you subscribe to our podcast on either iTunes or Stitcher and feel free to leave a review and give us any feedback on the show. This has been the eighth and final episode of The Staff Room for this series. Look out for an update on the release of Series 2 in the near future. I'm Michael Royale. And I'm Tessa Johnson. Thanks for listening.